All right, let's start with prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we just thank you that we can gather here tonight, Lord, that we can open your word. And so, Lord, the words that are spoken from this pulpit tonight, Lord, may they go forth in the power of your Holy Spirit. In this name, his name that we pray, amen. As I began uh, preparing uh, for the message tonight, I got to thinking about some of the great sermons that I've heard through the years from some very good preachers. And for the most part, um, sermons kind of follow a certain pattern. You know, it's a title, three points, and a story, right? Uh, well, when I teach on Sunday morning, I, I usually don't have a title. I don't have three points, and occasionally I will have a story or an illustration. Well, tonight I don't have three points. Uh, I will end with a story, though, and I figured, you know, I better have a title, you know, get at least two of the three. Um, and so, uh, I mean, after all, I am in the pulpit, so I kind of need to step up my game here a little bit. <clears throat> so, uh, but I tell you, after thinking about this, I think having a title or coming up with a title is probably the hardest part of preparing a message. Uh, so, I began, so I began giving this some thought, and I started to think about, well, what does a title need to convey? Well, it certainly needs to convey something about what you're going to preach about, right? Um, it certainly uh, was, well, sometimes um, preachers kind of get clever in the titles to their sermons. Um, like a sermon from Luke 5. We all know this passage. Hmm? It's about four friends who take their crippled friend to see Jesus. They get to the house and it's full. They can't get inside. So what do they do? They go to the roof and they cut a hole and they let their crippled friend down in front of Jesus to be healed. So the title of that sermon, Four of a Kind Beats a Full House. <laughs> or how about the passage in Acts where Paul and Silas are in prison, they're singing at midnight, an earthquake rocks the jail. The title of the sermon, Jailhouse Rock. I don't think that's what Elvis Presley had in mind when he, uh, when he was, came up with that title. All right, so while some titles are clever, some are just very practical, okay? If, you're, if I was preaching on John 15 about the vines and the branches, the simple title would be just Abide in Christ. Well, I wanted to come up with something intriguing, something that when you left here tonight, you would continue to ponder, maybe even be convicted. Um, so are you ready for the title? What pig are you? <laughs> what pig are you? That's the title. So y'all are either going to think I'm crazy, but I think if you stick to the end, it'll, it'll come to light what I mean by that. So turn with me to Psalm 127. I'm going to read from the ESV. It says, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to, him, to his beloved sleep. 
Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Solomon wrote Psalm 127, and the first thing he mentions here is a house. Now, Solomon knew a little bit about building houses. He built the temple, God's house. He built his palace. He also built a summer palace in Lebanon. He built a palace for one of his wives, the, Pharaoh of daughter, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh. So I think we could say he knows something about building houses. But he also mentions cities. Well, guess what? Solomon knew something about building cities. He built entire cities. He built Hazar. He built Megiddo. He built Gazar. He built Beth Horn and the city of Tadmor. Hmm? So he built a lot. In fact, if you keep in count, that's a temple, three palaces, and five cities. But that's not all he built. Listen to what Solomon had to say in Ecclesiastes 2. It says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. So he just didn't build buildings. He built lots of things. The big thing in real estate development nowadays is called mixed-use development. It's a combination of residential, commercial, and retail with beautiful landscaping, fountains, and parks. I think Solomon was ahead of his time. Also notice that Solomon, in the first two verses, um, he uses the word vain. Well, Solomon knew something about that as well. He wrote an entire book about vanity. We just read from it. It's called Ecclesiastes. He writes about the vanity of the many things that he tried to do to try to accomplish, to, to have fulfillment, mm -hmm. the building projects, the other things. But he had this to say about all those endeavors. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing them, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All that toil to build the houses and the cities, and he says it was meaningless. So you may be sitting there thinking, wow, Greg, way to be so encouraging right, <laughs> right off the bat. Right? Well, maybe I think it's the same thing, except we get to verse 1 in our psalm tonight. And what does it say? It says, unless the Lord builds the house. With the exception of the temple, all of Solomon's houses were built for him, for his pleasure, for his satisfaction. But by the time Solomon writes this verse, he's learned a little something. He's learned, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So let's explore this house. What kind of house is Solomon talking about? I found when studying God's Word that sometimes the greatest insights, the greatest understanding we can get in understanding God's Word is to simply know the meaning of words. 
So the Hebrew word for house in this first verse has several meanings. It means a physical house, but it also can be defined as household, home, or family. In fact, that Hebrew word is used over 80 times in the Old Testament to describe just that, a household, home, or family. So that's the definition that's being used here in Psalm 127. Um, Psalm is not saying it's a physical house. He is making reference to unless the, the Lord build a home. Okay, What's in a home? Family, right? Okay, so what's happening to this house? Well, it's being built. So let's look at that word. What does it mean? I love this Hebrew definition. It means to build, rebuild, establish, cause to continue. Now, we could camp out right there for the rest of our time together, but just remember that definition because we're going to come back to it. To, to build, to rebuild, establish, or cause to continue. But for the moment... I think we all get the gist. Okay, this verse is talking about establishing a home, unless the Lord establish a home. But look at the end of verse one. What's it? What's it say? Those who build it labor in vain. So guess what? A house is being built. It can be built the Lord's way, or it can be built your way. And you know what? You get to choose. But Solomon gives a warning. Build the house without the Lord, and what? It'll be in vain. So what does it look like to have the Lord build a house? Well, it's pretty simple. Make God first in your home. Joshua uh, led the children of Israel into the promised land. And near the end of his life, he called the children of Israel together. And he wanted to remind them of all the things that God had done. He went all the way back to Abraham, how God had called Abraham to go to a land that I will show you. Where was that land? The land they were now living in. Mm -hmm. um, he, he reminded them of how God had delivered them from Egypt, how they had crossed the Red Sea on dry land. He asked them to remember crossing another river, the Jordan River, and how God had delivered to them the promised land. He asked them to renew a covenant with God. And he had this to say, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the God your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the God of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my, what's it say? House. Same Hebrew word Solomon used in Psalms. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, I want you to consider something. Joshua grew up in Egypt. So he saw the plagues. He saw the walls of water as they crossed the Red Sea. He tasted the manna 
He drank from the water from the rock. But remember, he assisted Moses. So he also heard the grumbling of the people. And he saw firsthand the disobedience of the people that made him have to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. So when Joshua speaks, he speaks from experience, right? He speaks from someone who has seen what not living for the Lord will do. So when he says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, he means it. It wasn't something nice to print on a piece of artwork and hang in his house. When he speaks, he speaks from someone that feared the Lord and that served him with all faithfulness. And I think that's Solomon's point here. If we don't build a house faithful for God, then it is in vain. Well, the children of Israel didn't heed Joshua's advice. Let me read you Judges 2.10. It says, after, the, after that, whole generation had been gathered, gathered to their ancestors. So what generation was that? The generation that he had called to renew their covenant. It says, after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. One generation. That needs to be repeated. One generation. That's why Solomon said, unless the Lord builds the house, it's a waste of time. Unless the Lord builds a house, the next generation will not know the Lord. The last part of verse 1 at first was a little confusing uh, to me. It seemed, seemed to be out of place when you really, when you look at the whole text of Psalm 127, it just seemed to be out of place. The, re- the rest of the verses speak to children, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. But the tail end of verse 1 just seems like it shouldn't be there. It says, unless the Lord watch over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So why would Solomon mention a city? I mean, when we think about the entirety of this psalm, it's about home, it's about children. So why a city? Well, what makes up a city? Houses, right? Households. And what do households do? They form communities, churches, schools, right, businesses, and dare I say, government. So maybe Solomon had Psalm 1-6 in mind when he wrote this. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. You see, God wanted to bless the children of Israel. They were his chosen people. He wanted to bless them. And God told him, says, if you fully obey, he said this in Deuteronomy, he said, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. You see, God watches over those that follow him and his commands, including cities. But guess what? As goes the household, what? So goes the city. So, so a city not built with the households that are following God, the watchman watches in vain. All right, let's look at verse 2. It says, In vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of your anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. 
Many of the commentators I read seem to go in the direction of discussing work. Okay? Uh, and I kind of can see the point that they were trying to convey. So don't, you know, don't neglect the home by chasing after a career. But I don't think that's what's being said here. I mean, after all, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that his toil was vanity. So it could be likely that's what he was trying to make, but like I said, I don't think that was the case. I think Solomon's saying, you build your house your way and not the Lord's way, and you will be anxious, be anxious toil. You'll be rising early and staying late to maintain a house that the Lord did not build. And the fruits of that labor will be in vain. What does anxiety do? Keeps us from sleeping, right? So when he says in that last sentence, he gives to his beloved sleep. Hmm? I think of Psalm 3.5. I lie down, I sleep, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I think of Psalm 4.8. In peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. You know who doesn't sleep? Psalm 123.3, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. So the house that the Lord builds is a house of peace. Mm -hmm. Verse 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. I think it's interesting that Solomon starts out this verse with the word behold. Hmm? That word means listen up. I got something important to say. Hmm? It doesn't mean listen up, I'm going to tell you something. It means listen, all caps. What I'm about to tell you is important. Hmm? And so what's important here? Well, he tells us children. Hmm? How does he describe them? He says they are a heritage. When you think of heritage, what do you think of? I think of something that's, that's passed down, right? Maybe, maybe a family heirloom or some family land, something that's passed down from generation to generation. Maybe your family has a military heritage. People in your family have served, served in the armed forces for generations. Um, you know, Society, we as a culture have heritage. We have cultural heritages, right, just as a society. I mean, you think about we do things in the South because of our culture that the rest of the country sees as crazy. Um, but that's part of our heritage. Um, we have heritage as a country, right? Our heritage is based on freedom, the rule of law, and even though there are those that are trying to erase it, a heritage in God. So heritage is something that's given to you, something that's passed down. In fact, your version of the Bible may say that children are a gift from God. I kind of prefer the word heritage. Uh, I prefer that word because a gift can be accepted but not necessarily appreciated. Heritage, on the other hand, is something that we cherish, right? Something that is such a part of us that we can't deny it. It's something we almost have to embrace. And so I think of, I think of it that way. Heritage is something you possess 
whether it's that physical object, that family heirloom, or it's something that's just part of you, that heritage that's passed down, your character, your persona, your, your identity. Hmm? So keep that in mind. We'll come back to it. It says, we are made in the image of God, are we not? Genesis tells us that several times in Genesis. It tells us that we are made in the image of God. Where does our psalm say that children come from? Come from the Lord, right? So think of this. Children is God passing down his image. It's his heritage. So no wonder Solomon said, behold, okay? listen up at the start of this verse. This is important. So we need to understand this principle. Children are a heritage. And what's the purpose of heritage? To pass it on. To pass on the image of God. So how do we make sure that happens? Look at verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. A warrior. Have you ever thought of yourself as a warrior? Well, if you have children, that's what you are. Hmm? You're a warrior. I don't know what images come into your mind when you think of warrior, but it better be one bad-looking dude. Because whether you like it or not, society is at war with the family, against the family. Think of it. Society is trying to redefine, redefine marriage, is it not? Society wants to define your children's identity. Society is doing everything it can to break down the family. I did a little research. It wasn't that long ago it was hard to get a divorce. Prior to 1969, that was after I was born, Prior to 1969, to obtain a divorce, a party had to prove in court that the other party, now get this, breached a marital contract. You couldn't get a divorce just because you no longer wanted to be married. The marriage was a contract. If you think about it, the Bible calls it a vow, right? It's a marriage vow. The courts even looked at it that way. Then in 1970, society came up with no-fault divorce to make it easy to get a divorce. And guess which state passed that law? Yeah, California. Who do you think was next? New York. <laughs> well, here's a little tidbit. No-fault divorce did not become legal in all 50 states until October 15, 2000. It's just 12 years ago. But now society says what? There's not even a need to get married. So it takes a warrior because society is doing everything it can to get our, ch to get our children, to break down that family. So what's a, a warrior's job? Fight, right? So ask yourself, are you fighting? What does our verse say about children? Well, it says what, they are like what? Arrows 
How do you shoot arrows with a bow? Now, I'm not a bow hunter, but I do know a little something about bows. That's because when I was growing up, we used to make them all the time. All the kids in the neighborhood, we would make bows. And we weren't shooting each other, I don't think. But, <laughs> but we, would, we would try to find that perfect limb. It had to be flexible, but not too flexible. It had to be stiff, but not so stiff it would break. You see, to have the perfect bow, it had to be able to withstand the pressure of bending it. And then we would attach that string, and the perfect bow would have just the right amount of tension. So when we pull back that string with the arrow in it, it was not so flexible that it would fold, <laughs> and it was not so stiff that it would break. And I got to thinking about this. That bow represents us raising our children. Okay? You want to apply pressure to them. Now, don't get negative on me here. The right kind of pressure, good pressure. Okay? You want to have that tension. Not the tension that comes with arguments, but tensions that come with testing them. Okay? You want them to bend. You want to mold them. Right? You want to make them strong. Because children are going to get pressure. And we need to prepare them for that. Instill in your children things that when pressure comes, they don't fold and they don't break. All right, so what about the arrows? We would pick the straightest sticks to make our arrows. Because we understood one thing. If it wasn't straight it wasn't going to fly through the air true. And therefore, if it's not flying straight, it's not going to hit the intended target. So we'd make sure that those sticks that we made the arrows were straight. We'd also make sure that they were sharp because when it hit the target, we wanted it to penetrate. So our verse says children are like arrows. Well, arrows are intended to be shot. Are they not? Whether they fly true or not depends on how the warrior prepared that arrow. How deep it penetrates into society and how deep it penetrates into their own family is how sharp that warrior made them. So I think this dovetails nicely with the previous verse. Let your heritage be straight sharp arrows. So how do we do that? Well, we've got to have influence over them, particularly when they're young. Influence them toward the things of God because guess what? Something is going to influence them. You know, we used to be able to count on, you know, we, we would use the phrase, it takes a village to raise our kid, and we used to be able to count on that. I mean, parents... School teachers, coaches, Sunday school teachers, neighbors, all would have a good positive, and for the most part, a godly influence over our children. Nowadays, when we say it takes a village, that's only going to produce a village idiot. Hmm? We either influence our children for the things of God or TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, 
something else is. Right? It's going to influence them for the things of the world. The teacher in that rainbow shirt, they want to influence your kids. So it takes a warrior. Don't ever stop fighting for your children unless the Lord builds a house. Verse 5. Blessed is the man who finds his quiver, fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The first part of this verse kind of speaks for itself. Children are a blessing. But what about this last part? The ESV that I read from says, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks to his enemies at the gate. So who is the he that's being talked about here? Who is the he that's not going to be put to shame? Is it the man whose quiver is full of them? No. Many versions in the Bible say they will not be put to shame. So who are the they? The they is the children, right? The children of the man who... The warrior, okay? those children, the sons and daughters of those children, it's a test. The warrior shoots the arrows into the world. Hmm? In Bible times, the gate was the center of everything. Hmm? Business was conducted there, commerce, government affairs, everything was done at the gate. That gate represented the world. We have to be part of the world. We, we can't shield ourselves from it. We can't avoid it. I mean, we have to go to work. We have to go to school. Hmm? We have to be involved in our communities. But blessed is the man whose children are not put to shame. Hmm? They're shot out in the world. They're able to stand against the evils of this world. They do not compromise. They fly straight and they fly true. The NIV, I like the way the NIV says this. It says, they will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. Contend. That's a good word. It means to strive in opposition and against difficulty. We can try to protect our children, but in the end, they're going to be forced into the world. And they will face opposition and they will face difficulties. The foundation that's established will determine how well they do in this world unless the Lord builds a house. My Bible at this uh, top of this passage has the word song of ascents. Your Bible probably has it too. There are several psalms that have that, those words, song, songs of ascent. Jerusalem is built um, high, in a higher elevation than all the surrounding land. So when people went to Jerusalem, they had to walk uphill. So as they walked, usually as a family, headed toward the temple to worship, they would sing Psalm 127 and others like it. So what's happening when they sing these songs? It's a reminder to themselves that, of the things that, other things of God, but more importantly, it's teaching their children, right, the things of God. When I, uh, when I teach on Sunday morning, I always end my lesson with a takeaway. Uh, what can we take away from what passage we just learned about? And sometimes the best way to understand that takeaway is through an illustration. 
So I'm going to give you an illustration. In the 1800s, the three little pigs was first produced uh, in writing. No one really knows how old that fable really is. It goes back hundreds of years. And we all know the story, right? The mother sent her three little pigs into the world to seek their fortunes. And they each built a house. And like the three little pigs, um, there are three types of houses that we can build. God does not dictate to us the type of house we build. Now, he gives us a blueprint. He gives us God's word. But we have that option to accept that and use it or refuse it. Well, the first little pig decides to build his house of straw. It's cheaper. It's easy to build. Wouldn't have to devote much time to building that house. Investment would be minimal. He could seek his fortune. He could have time to live life as he saw fit. I mean, who has time for God anyway? It's just nonsense. His children will be okay. I mean, they'll, they'll survive this world somehow. I think a lot of people have built themselves straw houses. Straw houses don't have foundation whatsoever. They haven't devoted much time to it. They figure they can do, do just enough to get by. You know? They think they can get by life in their own merits. You know? But one of these days, while they're feeling all secure in this house of straw, along will come Satan, that big bad wolf. And he'll huff and he'll pluff and blow that house down. Matthew 6, 26 says, What's it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his soul? And a good chance the soul of his children. Remember our passage in Judges? There rose up a generation that did not know the Lord. So build the house your way and not God's way. Recipe for disaster. Now, the second little pig decided to build his house of sticks. Okay, it costs a little more. It takes a little longer. Oh, but what a fine house it is. It looks good. It's secure. This reminds me of the person that comes to church. They may be, even be recognized for their efforts in the church. Always come to the important business meetings, serve on committees. They call themselves Christians. But in reality, spiritually, they're just an inch deep. Their conversations around the dinner table aren't about the gospel. It's about gossip. They gossip about another church member. Or maybe they complain about the music being too loud. They're certainly not going to talk about God, and they're certainly not going to talk about a relationship with Him. And one of these days, while they're in their house of sticks, along will come Satan, that big bad wolf, and he'll huff and he'll puff, and he'll blow down their house. Jesus warned us against, uh, against this. He warned us when he was speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says, the people, can't, the people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I think the best verse to describe this house is what God told the church at Laodicea in, in Revelation. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to what? Spit you out of my mouth. So in reality, a house built their way is not God's way. Now, the third little pig decided to build his house of bricks. To lay bricks is hard work. It takes longer. It's more costly. It requires more investment and time and effort. But it also requires a foundation. What is that foundation? Well, it's the Word of God. And so just like his two brothers, Satan shows up, that big bad wolf, and he huffs and he puffs, but he can't blow down the brick house, a house built God's way. So here's my question. What kind of house are you building? Is it wolfproof? Because guess what? Whether you realize it or not, you're building a house. Now, the original three little pigs is a little bit different than the story I just relayed to you. We've softened it a little. And I think too many times parents in society have softened in recent years. Because you see, the original story, what happened to the first two pigs? They got eaten, right? They didn't go live with their brother in the brick house and live happily ever after. No. The wolf ate them. That reminded me of the parable of Jesus um, they told of the wise and foolish builder. We find that in Matthew. Let me read you that parable. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came, the storms rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came, the storms rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What happened to the houses of the first two pigs? It fell with a great crash. So what kind of houses are you building? What pig are you? So let me end it this way. I know that in a crowd there's all kinds of different situations. There, there are people that are hurting. They come from broken homes. And with that comes broken hearts, right? A lot of baggage. Well, this message is not mean to make you feel worse. Um, make you maybe even have to relive some of that heartache. My purpose is to encourage, because hmm? maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, maybe it's too late for my family, but it's not. It's never too late, because remember our Hebrew definition of the word build? What was included in that definition? Rebuild. You can start rebuilding, hmm? I mean, at Deacon Ordination uh, last Sunday, uh, we heard testimony of father and son restored. Hmm? 
And all it took was picking up a phone. And I know more than one man in this church who has a father who does not care to have a relationship. And it hurts. I mean, I can see the hurt. But you know what I do see in those young men? They're not going to let it happen to their family. They're building a new house. Another thing I like about the Hebrew word, the definition of house. Remember that last part of that definition? What was it? Calls to continue. That's heritage, folks. You don't get that by building houses of straw and sticks. You, build, you get that by building a house of bricks. So if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then go ahead. Build that house of straw, that house of sticks. The Lord gives you that choice. But I hope you leave here tonight saying with me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord because it's well worth it. So let us pray and we will be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for our time together. And Lord, we just, we thank you, Lord, that you give us your word, Lord, that we can build our house around. And may, Lord, you find us faithful in that, that we, that we do the things, Lord, in our family, that we are that warrior, Lord, that, that instills into our kids the things that they need, Lord, in order to face the evils of this world. And so, Lord, as we think about the kind of house that we want to build, may we be reminded, Lord, that we want to build that house of bricks, Lord. We want that foundation, Lord. We want to be able to stand against the evils of this world. So convict us, Lord, if we're not doing that. Show us the way. Guide us and direct us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.